0: Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Um, but I want to start by reading you a story. Can I read you an adult story? When I see, Hold on, let me, back. <laughs> let, me, let, let me wind that back just a little bit. I can't recover from that. This is, the service is now over. We're all going home. It's in the, Never mind. I'll read the story and you'll figure it out. All right? It's, uh, it's by a theologian and philosopher, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. You guys know the name? Some of you have heard the name Soren Kierkegaard. And it goes like this. A certain flock of geese lived together in a barnyard with high walls around it. Because the corn was good and the barnyard was secure, these geese would never take a risk. One day, a philosopher goose came among them. Yeah, can you imagine? He was a very good philosopher, and every week they listened quietly and attentively to his learned discourses. My fellow travelers on the way of life, he would say, can you seriously imagine that this barnyard with great high walls around it is all there is to existence? I tell you, there is another. And a greater world outside, a world which we are only dimly aware. Our forefathers knew of this outside world, for did they not stretch their wings and fly across the trackless wastes of desert and ocean, of green valley and wooded hill? But alas, here we remain in this barnyard, our wings folded and tucked into our sides, as we are content to puddle in the mud, never lifting our eyes to the heavens, which should be our home. The geese thought this was fine lecturing. How poetical, they thought. How profoundly existential. What a flawless summary of the mystery of existence. Often the philosopher spoke of the advantages of flight, calling on the geese to be what they were. After all, they had wings, he pointed out. What were wings for but to fly with? Often he reflected on the beauty and the wonder of life outside the barnyard, and the freedom of the skies. And every week, the geese were uplifted, inspired, moved by the philosopher's message. They hung on his every word. They devoted hours, weeks, months to a thoroughgoing analysis and critical evaluation of his doctrines. They produced learned treatises on the ethical and spiritual implications of flight. All this they did But one thing they never did they did not fly for the corn was good and the barnyard was secure in the story what is clear is that these geese had everything they needed to do the very thing they were created to do that everything they needed to fly and yet they didn't fly They became satisfied with something less, and the reason I read you this story is because I think the things that we've been talking about in this series have the potential to do the very thing to us that the story talks about. We can talk all about all of the things that, that we can do to deepen and enrich in our spiritual lives. We can talk about prayer and silence and solitude, and we can talk about reading scripture and generosity. We can talk about all of these things, and they will help us. They will help us experience the life of the kingdom, and yet they all exist within the context of a much greater purpose. And I think we're at risk if we don't talk about this much greater purpose. We've been in this series called The Struggle is Real, and we've based this on this idea that Jesus offers us life, a kind of life that doesn't happen naturally. But for many of us, what we experience is burnout, weariness, tired. This is our experience of life when Jesus says, I have come to give you life, and life in all its fullness. The anchor text for our series has been out of uh, Matthew 11, and I'll read it again from Eugene Peterson's uh, message, paraphrase, puts it like this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it learn the unforced rhythms of grace i won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly and the practices that we've offered you are intended to do that they're practices that jesus has given to us to engage in a different kind of life And if all we do is walk away from this series and we do Sabbath and we do silence and solitude and we do prayer and we're more generous people, we will live a different kind of life. But all of these things exist within a much greater context. And I want to show you that today. All of this fits within the context of the mission of Jesus and it only makes sense if that's the aim. I'm calling today's message, The Context for Spiritual Practices. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at Scripture. So Lord, I do thank you for the baptisms. I thank you for those steps that people are taking toward you. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to move in our midst. That you would continue to draw us closer to you. I pray, Lord, as we conclude this series, that you would give gifts of faith that folks would experience your presence. Lord, would you put your words in my mouth? Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to key in on one verse, okay? But let me give you a little bit of setup for this one verse. Luke chapter 4 starts with Jesus, and he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days. And over the course of 40 days, he's tempted by the devil, and you can read that part on your own. But when he comes back into town, he shows up in the synagogue, and he pulls Isaiah, and he reads this passage that says, the kingdom has come, and he basically says, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. Now, that makes a lot of people very, very angry, as you can read in the passage. And in their anger, they try to kill him. They're clearly unsuccessful at this point. So he leaves. He leaves. He shows up in another synagogue, and he teaches there, and he casts a demon out of a guy in the synagogue. And then he shows up to uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And that brings us to verse 40. Verse 40 says this. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. And this is our one verse. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I want to read verse 43 again to you. Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. From his own lips... Jesus says, My mission is to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. Period. Full stop. He doesn't say, and, 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 and. He says, My mission is to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This is the mission of Jesus. He says this in Luke 19. He says, "For the Son of Man came to, came to seek and save the lost." He's here to introduce people to a life in the kingdom. He's here to make an invitation to people to have relationship with God, to demonstrate what the kingdom of God, what the rule and reign of God is like, and invite people into a relationship with God. This is his mission. And what should be clear is that Jesus became present among people so that they would have this experience of the kingdom and experience the invitation of welcome. This is the mission. Everything else Jesus does only makes sense if we keep the mission central. If you take that off, everything looks weird that Jesus does. So Jesus heals people. And he casts out demons, and he raises the dead, and he forgives people, and he goes to the cross and and dies on the cross. And if you don't understand that all of this is for that one mission, these things don't really go together. And we can make up all kinds of reasons why Jesus does all of these other things, but the reason Jesus does all of this is because his mission is to preach and proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God has come. There's good news here, and that's all the miraculous stuff, but all the things that we've been talking about, everything, all the practices of Jesus is the same. All the practices we've been teaching you, right? We've been teaching you about Sabbath, and we've been teaching you about silence and solitude and prayer and generosity, and all of these things also, for Jesus, are a part of accomplishing the greater mission which is to introduce people into a life with God. And so quite frequently we see Jesus in the Gospels when things are important, right? He's going to pick his disciples, and what does he do? He withdraws to pray. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? Prayer is important. Why? Because it helps us get the heart and the mind of God. As soon as things get heavy, right? Jesus is praying for healing. He's healing all these people, casting out all these demons. Of course that's exhausting, right? It sounds like your normal day and my normal day. We're all just, you know, healing people all day long and casting out demons all day long, and it gets exhausting. And what does Jesus do? He withdraws to be with God, to pray. But all of this only makes sense in the context of the mission that he's doing. What I want you to see is the practices of Jesus only truly make sense in the context of the mission of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Right? So Jesus is engaged in his mission. Some people come toward him. Why? Because the life he's living looks amazing. Right? Doesn't it look amazing. Don't you wish you could just do that? Like, see. And then people see. You know? Rise. Take up your mat and Walk. That's a powerful one right there. Do you wish you could just do that? So that's amazing. It's like this life that Jesus is living captivates some people and they come toward him. And Jesus invites them into a life of discipleship. I like the word apprenticeship better because it hits our context better. You don't have to be a Christian to know what an apprentice is. It's the same thing. But he invites these people into a life of apprenticeship. The disciples are not just sitting around marveling at the wonderful teachings of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Like what you're doing right here is weird. Two people got that. (laughs) You realize it's weird for me to teach you something and then you're going to go home and eat lunch and just forget most of what I said by one o'clock, right? That's weird. Jesus doesn't do that. He teaches them, but he's apprenticing them to take over the mission. This is discipleship. That Jesus is making apprentices, and the disciples have the same mission as Jesus. They take the same mission to help people come into relationship with God. And the way this works is that Jesus teaches them practices and methods. You can imagine whenever he heals Peter's mother-in-law, he's like, put your hands like this. Right? You know, that sort of a thing. It doesn't really capture all of that. I kind of wish it did but he just heals Peter's mother-in-law but he's got Peter along just watching you can find parallels where Peter ends up doing the same thing and there's sort of a parallel it's like oh if we just put three people in there there's there's some weird things that happen if we put too many people so they're teaching the disciples how to engage in the mission and so what we see what do we see happens the disciples heal the sick they cast out demons they raise the dead They forgive people. If you look at church history, eventually they give their lives for the cause of Christ. And it only makes sense in the context of the mission of Jesus. But we also see other things, right? The disciples engage in worship, they engage in prayer, they practice Sabbath, they engage in silence and solitude all the practices that they've learned from jesus that are necessary for the sake of engaging the mission these are all essential and this is where this gets a little bit personal you know there's no space in scripture for any other kind of disciple There's not like the, well, those are the special ones, but there's like your everyday run-of-the-mill disciples who we get to just come to church, open the Bible whenever it gets too dusty, you know, pray whenever things way out of control. Do you know there's like no other category of disciple in the Bible? There's not like your average ones that don't engage in the mission. It's like not a real thing. It's a uniquely American concept where this doesn't cost you everything that you have. That you can follow Jesus in a way that doesn't cost you your entire life. It's odd. And the fact of the matter is, every disciple of Jesus begins by receiving the mission. It's how it always starts. These folks that were baptized today. It's how it always starts. I have had an encounter with Jesus. Other people should have that same encounter guess what? That's the mission. And all of the practice of Jesus makes sense in that context. I want to tell you a personal story. Some of you know the stories, because I forget which stories I've told, and which, I guess in that way, maybe I'm getting older. I can't, yeah, that's all. I'll stop with that. Some of you are older than I am, and this could be offensive. So, (laughs) many of you knew I grew up in a Lutheran home. My family went to church all the time. We were there, my dad was the president of the congregation twice, he has now sworn that off, like he quit for Lent and then never went back. That's not actually how that happened, but he has said a number of times, like I'm never doing that again. Um, But we attended church all the time, like we were there on the nights nobody else was there, you know, we were... You know, they're trying to start the Wednesday night programming, and it's like my family and another one in the pastor. It's like, okay, we maybe we'll get this thing going eventually. We were there all the time. Guess what I learned growing up in church? This may or may not have been what they were trying to teach me. What I learned, reading the Bible is really important. I'm not saying that it's not. Going to church was really important. Praying was really important. Not sinning was extra important. Anybody grow up in that? Not sinning is super important, right? So this is really, 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 really important. These are the things that I took away from growing up in church. But the reason that I knew that they were important was very self-centered. Do you know why I learned those things were important? I learned those things were important because if you did those things right, God would not be bad at you and you could go to heaven when you die. Have you learned that? Like that? Did you grow up learning that? Like That was my experience. I grew up learning that I had to act right in order to not make God so mad that he wouldn't let me into heaven when I died. We talked about grace, and it was sort of like, yes, this is, it's all grace, it's all grace, but make sure you read your Bible. Because if you don't, nobody ever finished the line, so I just finished it for myself. I read that to be, if I don't read my Bible enough, God's going to be mad at me and I won't get into heaven. If I don't pray enough, God's going to be mad at me and I won't get into heaven. If I don't show up to church enough, if I don't give enough, if I sin too much, God's going to be mad at me and I won't get into heaven. Do you know what the effect of that belief is, that wrong belief is on a person, especially a kid? A kid. what I felt buried under was the weight of feeling like I had to be perfect in order to actually please God. Had to be. And I began to envy the people that I knew who were not Christians. Because when I was in middle school and in high school, I'm like, I'm 70 to 80 years from dying. Doesn't really matter. You know, when I get there, I didn't envy them, you know, sorry for (laughs) y'all. Y'all are in trouble. It's going to be really hot for you. I'm going to be okay. Right? But 70 to 80 years of being buried under the pressure of trying to read your Bible enough and pray enough and make sure you show up to church enough, don't sin too much, which, oh, by the way, I was failing on a minute-by-minute basis. And all I wanted desperately was to have the peace that the people who didn't know Jesus had. Do you see how twisted this is? This is what I believed. So when I got to college, it was easy for a philosophy professor to say, you can't actually know God exists, so he probably doesn't. And you know how I received that? I was like, oh, praise God. (laughs) Some of you didn't get the humor in that. Praise God that I, okay, all right. And so what ended up happening is I walked away from faith and it felt like a relief to me. But the truth of what happened was I just deconstructed a false belief, right? This is common in our culture right now, is it not? People are trying to figure out what is true and what is false, and false belief is being deconstructed. That's what's happening, all over our culture. The problem is we've been teaching a lot of people a lot of false belief for a long time and so it feels chaotic in the church. It feels chaotic as people are trying to figure out what's true and figure out whether this is really Jesus and what is made up. That's what I did. I went through this deconstruction moment and what I discovered when I met Jesus a few years later. I discovered that God wanted a relationship with me even though I didn't want one with him. I discovered that God loved me when I didn't love me. I discovered that God was not concerned when it came to loving me. It was not as big of a deal that I couldn't keep all the practices. That his love was not dependent on my ability to read the Bible enough or pray enough. His love for me was not dependent on my ability to give enough or show up to church enough. He just loved me. And that made all the difference in the world. I was introduced to a Jesus who wanted me. And what I discovered in the process of all of this, the minute I surrendered my life to Jesus, 2003, I remember where I was and I will never forget the experience, ever. The minute I experienced Jesus for who he was, I was on the mission. Because the experience of love that I had experienced from God, everybody should have. In many ways, that experience is what has brought me to this point. It's what makes this so exciting to me, is watching people find the life that I have experienced. And I will give my life to this forever because I've had an experience of God and the way he is and everybody should have that experience do you see what I'm saying when we come to faith you are invited into the mission of Jesus and it's not like a you have to evangelize that terrifies all of us right if you don't have a like a vibrant relationship with Jesus you probably shouldn't evangelize I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that but I just did let me tell you why. Because you're convincing people, trying to convince people into something that you're not experiencing. It's one of the most dishonest things that you can do, to be an extremely hateful person and say, but you need Jesus, and be angry at someone. Guess what happens? They'll find him while you don't have him. It's one of the most intellectually dishonest things you can do: is to, to invite someone into a relationship with a Jesus that you have not encountered. But what happens on the flip side is when you encounter Him, He doesn't make you join the mission. It's just natural. When was the last time you went to a great restaurant? I mean, anybody, anybody go? I mean, can, anybody can? Can anybody afford to go to a restaurant anymore? Last time you went to a restaurant that you loved, on your way out, did they, did they like go, hey, did you, did, you, did you like the experience? And you say, well, yeah, it was amazing. You better tell someone. You better tell people how the steak was, right? Nobody does that because if your experience at the restaurant was good, guess what happens? You're like, oh, we went to this place. It was amazing. You should try it. I'll go with you. I didn't try the ribs this time right? The same is true with Jesus. You have an encounter and experience with Jesus as he is, and automatically you're in the mission. That's how it works. Why? Because everybody should have this. Everybody should have the experience I've had. What I want you to see is that the mission of God has made sense of all of the practices that I've been talking about. Guess what happened? I gave gave my life to Jesus, and then I started telling everybody about it. Literally within the first 10 minutes. I was at a Christian camp when I gave my life to Jesus, okay? I'm at the top of this hill, give my life to Jesus. I go down the hill to to the dining hall. It's like 6.30 in the morning. No college student is awake except for me, and these people who are making breakfast. And I walked into the dining hall, and I was like, Jesus is real! And they're like, yeah, we know. I'm like, you don't know. Because if you did, you would have told me. You would have spared me all the pain that I've been going through for all these years trying to find something real. You don't know. In 10 minutes, I became an evangelist. It was crazy. But as I started to tell people about Jesus, somebody would ask me a question that I didn't know the answer to. You've had this experience, haven't you? Just laughing just like me. And what happens? Nobody had to tell me to read my Bible. That's where I went for the answers. Guess what? The practice of reading your Bible makes sense because of the context of the mission you're in. Nobody had to tell me you have to read your Bible. I needed the answers, and that's where they were. Nobody had to tell me I had to do it. And then, you know, I went back and I'm like, man, I discovered something new about Jesus and I started telling people that. And then somebody was like, hey, you know, you're kind of a hypocrite. Your life doesn't line up with the things you say are true. Problem is, is that we all know that's true, don't we? Went home like, God, I think they're right Nobody had to tell me I needed to engage in silence and solitude and prayer. Because of the context of the mission, I needed God to fix me. Because these people recognize that I'm a hypocrite. I'm saying things that are true, but my life doesn't look that way. And what I knew is that the Holy Spirit would change me. So I just showed up repeatedly in silence and solitude and prayer. Nobody had to tell me I needed to make a practice of that. The practice came out of the mission. Do you see what I'm saying? Does this make sense to you? When I began to get a little bit self-centered, I mean, I'm... When I was more self-centered than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) Got to be careful how I say this. We got to be honest, right? When I started to realize that I began to make my world all about me, What I recognized I needed to do was on a repeated basis, I needed to magnify God as the king. Jesus is in charge of my life. Guess what? Nobody told me I had to make a practice of worship. I instinctively knew I needed to. Does this make sense to you? When you get a hold of the mission, the practices follow. But if you try to just get a hold of the practices you may never end up in the mission. You're a goose that's running around in a barnyard instead of flying. Do you see this? That's what I'm trying to show you, is that the practices only make sense in the context of the mission. The practices are not the end goal. The mission is the goal. The practices help us do the mission. Do you see this? And this is the way it works through the rest of our lives. As you follow Jesus into the mission, the practices help you better engage the mission. And you will find that you need them. Discipleship is best done in the context of mission. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. You begin to engage the practices as you're in in the mission. And like Jesus, people go... Your life looks different. People are watching you. They go, your life looks different. You seem to be demonstrating something that doesn't seem normal. Right? Your life looks easier than my life. Your life looks more fulfilling than my life. And what begins to happen is people get hope by watching your life they get hope. By watching the transformation that God is doing in your life as you're engaged in the mission, people begin to say, maybe God would do that for me. Some of you are here and you're like, well, you know, maybe once I have it all put together, right? I need to study the Bible a little bit more, make sure I can like quote all of the ways I can refute what people are going to say to me, which don't do that. It's just Creates a hostile environment. But once I get that together, you know, I gotta get my life a little bit more in order. You know, you don't know my family, Derek. We're just like a we're just a trauma bucket. It's just one thing after another after another. And so I really kind of need to get on firm footing before I start engaging in the mission. Right? We just gotta get our things together. I need people to see that my life works. Can I just tell you? The mission works at least as well when you don't have your stuff together as it does when you do. It works at least as well. Let me give you an illustration. I want to tell you two facts about my life and then give you a third, okay? Number one, I flew airplanes as a career for 20 years. It's a great career and you can make a lot of money at it. That's fact number one. Fact number two, I went through the most, one of the most traumatic experiences of my life when we lost our middle child to miscarriage. It's a pain that I would never wish on anybody, and it's still close, even though it's been 11 years ago. Both of these things happened while I was a Christian. When I end up in a conversation with people who don't know Jesus, the fact that I flew airplanes for 20 years creates a lot of wow in the conversation, right? Wow, that's amazing. That's, I bet that was a cool job. But when people find that I have walked with Jesus and he has healed me and is healing me from the trauma of losing a child, that creates hope. Because people are like, if he does that for you, maybe he would do that for me. You know, nobody has said that about piloting. Nobody has said, wow, you had a 20-year... If he could do that for you, maybe he'd do that. Nobody says that. I say this because what I want you to understand is the pain and the trauma that you have experienced. If you'll allow Jesus to heal it and walk with you through it, creates more connection with people who need to know Jesus than all of the successes that you have. One of the most dangerous things of prosperity gospel preaching is it says, I have to demonstrate that I have all of my stuff together, that I have all of the nicest things, that I have the nicest clothes, the nicest car, the nicest house, all of my social media, we look amazing, we never age, right? All of these pictures, like these people are like 60, and it's like, wait, you look like you're 35, but there's your face doesn't move right (laughs) it's plastic surgery right this is the what prosperity gospel preaching says is you have to look like you have it all together because then people will be like i want that kind of a life do you know i have had more connection with people who are far from jesus through my pain and my trauma than i ever will through my success ever nobody's impressed by your success there's people successful people all over the place the reality is we comfort others from the comfort, comfort we have received. But it only becomes real for us as we choose to allow the mission of God to be the context for which we do life. It's the only way it becomes real. Is if you choose to open your life to other people by way of mission and allow them to see what God's doing inside of you. I want to offer you, as I close here, Two very practical ways to begin to engage. First way I want to offer you, if you've been in our life groups, you have heard us talk about this. Our heart, our hope is that everyone in this church has two people in their lives that are far from Jesus that they're praying for. Two people. This is like a family member, a co-worker, somebody you have somewhat routine contact with that you would begin to pray that they would meet Jesus. Maybe this person has never had a relationship with Jesus. Maybe they know who Jesus is, but they're far from him. And we would ask that you would pray for that person. This is not the time to pray for foreign dignitaries unless you have a close personal relationship with a foreign dignitary at which, you know, don't... Pray for the president, absolutely. The president is not your friend. You're probably never actually going to talk to the president. Pray for the president have two people who don't know Jesus who are far from Jesus that you're praying for. Let me tell you why we've engaged in this practice. Because the minute you put faces and names to your Christian life of people who need to know Jesus, everything gets real. Now you're not studying Scripture because you need to know, like, one more citation that you have memorized. You're saying, man, I had this conversation with my coworker, and what she said really bugs me, but I know Jesus has hope for her. I just need to discover in Scripture what what she needs. It changes the way you think about your Christian experience. You're no longer resting just because you're tired. You're resting because you need to be able to show up in the kind of way where people might experience Jesus through you. Do you see this? It changes the way you do your Christian life to have people that you're praying for. And the cool thing is, we've been doing this practice as a church for not even a whole year yet. And I know of almost two handfuls of people who are moving toward Jesus because the faithful people in this church are praying. Do you know what I'm really excited for? I'm really excited for when those people come through the doors. And we as a church, especially if you're in your life group, you've been like, hey, would you pray with me, my, my friend? They're just really going through this thing. When that person comes through the door and they give their life to Jesus and we get to baptize them. Do you know how much celebration? Uh, we had a great celebration today. Can you imagine the celebration when your coworker shows up on a Sunday and you're like, oh, You know what's going to happen is you're going to go, Derek, are you preaching? Is this like a guest speaker day? What are you talking about? My friend is going to be here. They're sitting in the back row. Can you at least offer them a chance to give their life to Jesus? But when that person takes a step of faith, and then we baptize that person, and this is my commitment as we go forward, you lead them to Jesus, you get to help baptize them. Like, this is not my show. We're all engaged in this. You lead them to Christ, and you're going to help baptize them. So you get to bring a towel that day too. But we've begun to see this happen. There are people who are getting closer to Jesus in and around this church because people have faithfully prayed. I would ask you, I would implore you, I would urge you, if you don't have two people that you're praying for, pray for them and pray that God would heal the hurts, that God would draw them close to himself and pray that God would use you in whatever way. That's number one, okay? Two people to pray for. Number two, second thing I want to offer you. Some of you are going to roll your eyes as soon as I say this, but that's okay. I can take it. I'm a grown-up. The second thing I would offer you is to participate in the upcoming Emotionally Focused Intensive. Some of you are like, what's that? I'm glad you asked. Emotionally Focused is a process that, by which we discover the things, emotionally, that stand in the way of us showing up in the way we intend to show up. Like, well, what does that have to do with the mission of God? It has a lot to do with that. What I found in my own life, as I began trying to share faith with people, is I kept running into myself. You ever find like, I intended to show up with that friend in a different way, and I wish I could take it back. You ever do that? Any of you ever preach long enough to like say things you wish you could have back? Any of you ever like talk to people long enough to go, man, I wish I could unsay that? What happens in a lot of our lives is we've been formed from our earliest formations formed and shaped to protect ourselves in certain ways. And when we were kids, that helped. Now that we're adults, a lot of times we find it gets in the way. What's important is that as we show up, we show up as the person God designed us to be. We show up as who God intends us to be. Emotionally focused is a process by which we begin to understand the ways we've been formed, That's the intensive. It's two days. It's the 3rd and 4th of November. It's Friday, Saturday. Take the day off of work. Call in emotionally unhealthy. (laughs) Um, 3rd and 4th, what we'll do is we'll build a foundation. That's why it's called Emotionally Focused Foundations. The second phase of that is called Emotionally Focused Formations. It's 24 weeks of trying to to, to process with Jesus and walk through the things that we've discovered. About ourselves. The people who have been through this, you can tell who they are. They are the emotionally healthy ones. I'm urging you to participate. If you have been in this process somewhere, maybe you finished uh, the foundations but you didn't try formations. Maybe you got to formations and you didn't try the next one is family and then mission. Whatever spot you're at, if you're stuck, if you've stopped, can I just urge you to take the next step? But if you've never participated, it's here. It's two days, we're going to feed you both days, lunch both days, we're going to have snacks for you, coffee for you when it gets to be three o'clock and you're like, I can't make it anymore. Cost is $100 for all the things. If that's an issue, talk to us. I would rather you do it and we figure out some way than not do it because, hey, I, I'm trying to pay for food. Seriously. Seriously. That's, that would be the second thing I would urge you to do. Emotionally focused foundations. That's in, it's not even two weeks. It's the November 3rd and 4th. It's a Friday, Saturday. Register for it on our website. Take that step so that you can begin to show up as the person God intended. Those are the two things I would offer you because here's the deal, and I'll finish here. As a follower of Jesus, mission shapes everything that we do. Mission shapes the way that we pray. Mission shapes the way we read scripture. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.